You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. It's fantastic to see everybody. My name is Ben Golder. I am one of a gang of three my other collaborators, uh, as you all know, uh, Sanjay Pahuja and Kathleen Beryl. Sanjay is at the University of Melbourne and Kathleen at La Trobe University. And together, uh, we three constitute TASC. I think the acronym stands for the Academic Skills Circle, uh, which is housed under the excellent auspices of ILA, um, International Institute for uh, International Law and the Humanities at the University of Melbourne. And the idea behind these sessions, if you are coming to this one for the first time, and a special welcome, uh, is that we invite or we try to invite a very special guest every time that is more special than Sanjay, Kathleen or I, uh, and today it's Dina Zavala from the ANU, to come and talk to us about a particular um, aspect of academic work. And the idea behind these sessions uh, is that we don't often, uh, we're not often told how to do these things, like, for example, peer review, um, or we're not told how to give a conference paper, or we're not told how to do various aspects of our scholarly life. And so we thought it would be a good idea um, to kind of convene a group discussion around a given topic and to spend some time slowing down over it and thinking seriously and carefully about how and why we go about doing what we do. Uh, but to do that in you know, a serious way, but also a kind of an, an open way so that we can generate a bit of a collective discussion uh, around that that theme. And so the format for today is I'm going to introduce a very special guest in a moment um, and let Dina kick us off with some reflections on the on the theme of peer review. And then uh, we will open for a, a general Q&A discussion. And I really want to invite people to um, come back with questions that they've got about what Dina has had to say to us about peer review. So before introducing Dana, I should acknowledge that we are all probably uh, zooming into today's session from different Aboriginal lands. I am at the University of New South Wales, which is on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. And I want to pay my respect to Aboriginal elders and in particular, any Aboriginal people on this call uh, today. We are especially grateful uh, for today's very special guest, Associate Professor Dina Zavala at the Australian National University. If you do not know uh, Dina and her work, you're in for an absolute treat. Um, if you do know her, you will know that she is a scholar of international law who looks at international law and the history of international law uh, through the lenses of political economy and Marxism, but also post-structuralist philosophy. Um, I could go on and on and on, but she has um, more interesting things uh, to tell us about peer review. So I'm going to shoot now with my huge thanks to Dina, and she's going to talk for about 10, 15 minutes about how she thinks about and approaches the, the task of peer review. Dina, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, thank you also, of course, to Sunday and to Kathleen uh, for putting together a series, for inviting me. And yeah, I think also, Ben, as you said, I really wish these things were around like a few years earlier, right? I think they would have saved me a lot of time, a lot of embarrassment and a lot of uh, work. So if if we can do that uh, for people who are now finishing or have just finished their PhDs, that would be um, wonderful. Um, thank you for inviting me to talk, especially about this topic. Um, so yeah, I think. An interesting thing that I think is quite new is people are 
being asked to do peer reviews earlier and earlier than it perhaps used to be the case. I think it was very exceptional for people to be asked to do peer reviews before they finish their PhDs. I think now it starts happening um, quite a lot. For very many of you, that speaks to the quality of your work, right, and to the recognition you're already getting um, from the field. But of course, it talks uh, to to a crisis uh, of finding uh, peer reviewers. So I think it's it's interesting to acknowledge um, the tension there, and I think it's also really important to acknowledge that it, especially for someone who's still doing their PhD or they're just after, it's. It's daunting, but I think it's also a very flattering um, thing to receive. And I think it's interesting to think how to deal with it um, in the best way possible. I do do I do try to do as many peer reviews as I can. Um, generally, PhD shouldn't have this rule, but I think for permanent members of staff, I try to do three for everyone that I submit. Um, in the sense that two people will have at least two people will look through the things I submit. I see it as a way of being a good citizen um, of, of my field and my discipline, but also quite self selfishly. I find it a way to keep up with what is happening in my field and perhaps with like things that are close enough, but not as close I would necessarily have disciplined myself to sit down and read it. So I find that I gain from it um, as much as I hopefully help people to do it. So I think it's a way, it's, it's a service, but I think there is an aspect of it that is reasonably thought of as research. And I think if you start thinking it like this, this can help you consider realistically how much of it you could be doing. Because I think if you only think of it as service, probably you can do less. Um, so that's that's the contextual perhaps thing. So when I was invited to do these, I was trying to think, you know, who is reviewer to and why do we hate them? And I think, you know, we hate them sometimes for things that have nothing to do with peer review. So obviously getting feedback is not always good um, or pleasant. It's always good. It's not always pleasant. But I think to the extent that peer review, like reviewer two actually does fail and they fail often, we fail often. I think it's a failure of genre amongst other things. I think it's writing something that is not actually a peer review. It is a critical article, a critical engagement. It's the beginning of a public book review or something like that, but it is not a peer review. And I think that's above all what it's important to keep in mind. Peer review is a genre, and I think good peer reviews are determined by knowing the conventions of the genre. And as a genre, I think it's, it's determined very much by its audience, you're not writing a peer review to show to the entirety of the discipline how well read you are. You're writing a peer review for two audiences. For the editors, either the editors of the journal or the editors, let's say, of the book or the editors, the professional editors of the publisher who's going to publish the book. Um, and you're writing um, a peer review for the author. And I think insofar you're writing the 
peer review for the editor. So basically you're giving advice to a decision maker on how to make the decision. As lawyers, this is a familiar thing to do, right? It's in my view, an exercise amongst other things, an exercise in justification. And therefore it's also an exercise in alignment. Like one of the things that annoy me when I receive peer reviews is the lack of, sometimes, is the lack of alignment between the final recommendation and the content and um, volume of comments received. So sometimes you will see things that involve what is, in my view, very reasonable and quite limited suggestions coming with the reject um, recommendation. And as an editor and also as an author, this has been quite frustrating. So for me, one very important thing to do with a peer review is come up with the final suggestion and write a proper justification for it, or even vice versa. Write down your comments and read them at the end. And no matter what you thought your justification was actually your recommendation was actually going to be, see what your, your recommend what recommendation you have reasonably grounded based on the reasons that you gave. Because sometimes these two things actually end up misaligned. I get annoyed by something. But when I eventually see what concrete comments I had, it's not a reject. It's it's maybe a major correction. So that would be one thing. See it as an exercise in justification of basically an administrative decision, right? So that would be your writing um, for the editor. I think also this art of persuasion also applies towards the author. I think we are also trying to persuade the author, both that our recommendation was a justifiable one, but also we are trying to persuade them to actually make um, the, the, the alterations that we have recommended. Um, and, and therefore, I do think, for example, that, you know, being uh, as little belligerent as possible, <laughs> especially actually when giving very, very um, extensive comments, I would say my tone gets softer the more um, extensive revision I give to people. I think sometimes when something is really, really good, but it has one aspect to it that is very strange, my tone can be quite intense just to communicate that this is a really good piece. Please don't make such a silly mistake. Um, but when I actually um, give extensive comments, when I give reject or when I give very major corrections, I tend to tone things down um, and counterbalance that. Um, something that it took me years to do is to feel free to give people no corrections. Uh, it almost felt to me like I was failing the editors or I was coming across as not rigorous or not serious enough if I didn't give people at least minor corrections. Um, I don't know. Lately, I'm like, actually, this is good. This can actually be published the way that it is. 
So I feel free to give people my no corrections, even as in the comments, I might say, listen, I think this can be published absolutely the way it is. Here is some comments, but I make it very, very clear that none of it, that publication should not be made conditional on incorporating any of these comments. I think especially because I'm talking to this particular crowd, um, a training in critique can also be a training in criticism. Uh, and I think it's important to just at some point be like, is this publishable the way it is? And if the answer is yes, I think it's perfectly legitimate um, to give uh, no corrections. To go to the other side um, of, of the spectrum, um, I try when I recommend rejections to always try to find what was actually good and valuable about the piece. And sometimes I will write reviews like, and I hope nobody picks up that it was me by saying that, um, this is actually really interesting. This could be extra, an extraordinarily good piece because it says X, but it's really not there yet. In a sense, it can be a little bit an exercise in paternalism, and I acknowledge that, but sometimes it can be, I'm not going to let you put this out yet because I think you're going to regret it in a few years. And there have been some reviewers too who saved me from myself in the past. It is paternalistic and I think there's interesting ethical issues to discuss here. Um, but sometimes I do think it is warranted. And when I do that, I try to explain it as much as possible, that I found value in the piece. I thought the main idea was perhaps really valuable, but I think the research or the writing or the argument are simply not there yet. And in these instances, I do try to say that as explicitly as possible rather than give people a reject and let them, you know, do whatever they want. And in a sense, I try to encourage them not to send it to a lower rank journal, to be very frank, but to rework it because there's something really valuable in there. When to say no, um, that's also, I think, a thing um, that takes a while. Of course, as PhD scholars, those of you who are PhD scholars, you're not paid to do that. So I think it's legitimate to say no in many instances. I think, um, of course, not having time is a very obvious reason to say no. But beyond that, I think I tend to say no when based on the abstract I know that I will have nothing constructive to say about it. Um, it's really tempting to just to try to play gatekeeping and be like, oh, I know I will hate this. I could really write a terrible review of this and make sure that it's never published. I think there is ethical issues, but to be honest, very again, selfishly, I will just get annoyed and frustrated and I will have a terrible time trying to write something. So there have been times I said no right away, just seeing the abstract because I was like, Maybe it's a lack of my imagination, but I don't find anything useful in this approach. And I'm just going to say no, because it's better to say no than then trash it. I have also said no when after receiving, after saying yes, and I, receiving, I received the piece, I realized 
maybe not who it was, but I realized the group of people that this could possibly be. And again, I was like, I just know I cannot write anything constructive. And I've, I, I think you should feel free after, even after saying yes, to write back to the editors and say, you know, having have a read of the whole piece, I don't actually think um, that I can write an unbiased and constructive um, review of this. Another way of saying no um, and sweetening the bill is, of course, to say no and to recommend someone else, you know, that always makes the reviewer's life easier. It makes you feel better. Um, and of course, it can give another um in your case, let's say more junior scholar, the opportunity to do it. And of course, to to conclude, the main thing I have to say is, and it's going to be incredibly bureaucratic, is don't be like me. And when you actually do it, please write it in your CV. Um, because I've had this moment of just trying to remember and hectically looking through my email because I was like, oh, I know I've done something, but I cannot remember. If you choose to do it, the moment you send it off, open your CV and write it down. You know, I have reviewed for this or that journal um, because, yeah, your future self is really going um, to be very grateful for that. I think that was all I had, but obviously I'm really, really um, happy to have a discussion and answer any questions. Thank you for your time and for your attention. Dana, thank you. That was amazing. I've posted in the chat an encouragement for people to think of questions while they were listening to you um, talking and I want to give them a little bit of an opportunity. I'm seeing hands clapping but I'm interpreting that as just acclamation of what you've got to say rather than a virtual hand coming up. Um, I might start if I can abuse um, the privilege of chairing uh, and give people a little bit more time to formulate some thoughts. I mean one thing that really struck me Dana listening to you was thinking about the the kind of, um, I think, as you put it, the genres of critique or of criticism, or perhaps, I mean, I often think of it, think of a lot of my work as, as being on a continuum of marking at one end uh, is kind of undergraduate marking, um, you know, all the way through to kind of marking or reviewing, you know, book reviews or review essays. It's all a form of critical engagement. Um, but one of the anxieties that I find in undergraduate marking often apart from the time it takes and the boredom that one has to, you know, uh, encounter, is is trying to think of um, a grade to append to a, to a text. So I often have that experience of kind of reading undergraduate legal theory papers and actually getting to a point where I think, oh, no, this is a 72. It's not a 73 or a 71, it's a 72. And then I, I, I read it in a much more relaxed and constructive way up to that point. It's like, okay, I've actually put this in a box and I've graded it, et cetera, and gone. And I realised that I have that kind of experience of reading constructively and ease more easily in the context of examining PhDs because, spoiler alert, I basically start the work of, of examining a PhD here is my advertisement to examine all your students' PhDs, assuming that it is going to pass, that it's going to be a PhD. And so I'm not kind of overburdened with the anxiety of like, is this a PhD or isn't it? You know, how am I going to vote up or down um, that kind of judicial moment of decision? I'm reading with it and I'm, I'm reading a lot more constructively. And so 
I, I experience that same kind of anxiety often as a peer reviewer thinking, oh, is this going to be a minor changes or a major changes or a revise and resubmit? Um, and just listening to you, I think actually, I think a better way of going about that is to just set aside that question of what is it, um, uh, what category does it fall into, at least the first time you read it and just read it, read it read with it and to read, to think about, you know, what your take on it is, not whether you think it should be published or not. So I thought that was actually one of the many um, really, really helpful constructive things I got out of listening to. But I have now spoken long enough to enable Kathleen and then Robbie to put their hands up. So I'm going to shoot to Kathleen. Can um, I just say something to what you just yeah. said, Ben? Yeah, it, sure, sure. The way I think it is, I decide what it is reading my own comments, not reading the piece. Yeah. I read the piece to write my comments and then I read my comments to decide what it is because it, it, I think that's an easier way of actually constructing where I stood about it. That's, that's yeah, that's excellent. And if I'm just going to jump in again and cheat before going to Kathleen, but um, now with a kind of editorial hat on, um, one of the things that I often find as an editor of a journal that I do work with, Contemporary Political Theory, is that often the kind of recommendations that that peer reviewers will make are actually wildly out of sync with what they've actually said. Um, and the best piece of advice that I got as a baby editor on that journal from Sam Chambers, who runs it, was you need to take what people say about the piece seriously and the labour that's gone into kind of formulating their thoughts, but don't be bound with what their judgment is because often the two don't match up. Um, and in a sense, as Denny, you were telling us, right, you're rendering an opinion to the editor to help them make the decision. So it's your decision as an editor. Um, and they, they, they can often not be, you know, they can be really critical, but not actually be able to bite the bullet and say, this really shouldn't see the light of day. Um, Kathleen. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much, Jean. And that was really interesting and um, helpful to hear the, your thoughts. I was just thinking about these two different things. Um, you were talking about when you felt it was legitimate and perhaps justified to say no. And you were just talking, Ben, about, you know, the question of reading a piece on its own terms, which is something that a lot of us have thought about for a long time when we're doing all different kinds of academic reading. And I'm just thinking about that tension between responding, the necessity to respond within your own or from your own intellectual sphere and experience with integrity, but also avoiding the temptation to always use your own position as the point of departure. And I wonder whether that, you know, that, that obviously plays into a decision about whether or not to peer review in the first place um, and whether there's space to sometimes be able to peer review something and consider it on its own merits, even if you disagree, and whether people have, you know, if they have experience with that or think that that is a useful way to approach or, you know, you were talking, Dina, about um being able to identify the, uh, if, if not the specific author, but perhaps the group of people, and that's happened to me a lot. And um, sometimes I think, well, I should be able to discipline myself to respond to this constructively, even if this is not, um, you know, where my particular thinking and reading and experience would have taken me. Thanks. Thank you, Kathleen. Yeah, it's a tricky one, right? 
for me, the way to I try to think about it is, and I think we all have a similar delineation is things that I disagree with very fundamentally, but I really see their value. And there are certain things that I just don't. And as I said, I'm not defending this intellectually. It's a failure of imagination, but it's also what it is, right? And I can't always um, change that just because I received a peer review, right? So I try to always engage with the former. With the latter, I'm just like, I don't know what to do with this. And I will not say anything other than please stop doing this. And that's a silly thing to do. The other thing that one can try to navigate is, is I think sometimes, and I see that for myself when I write, the author is as uncertain as you are as a peer reviewer, by which I mean the following. Sometimes I will write in my peer review, if you want to talk, to the formalists, I feel, I'm not one, but I suspect that this is where things go a little bit array here. But if you want to talk to, let's say, critical legal crowd or a lawyer humanities crowd, I think you should be doing this. And I think it's okay to have this sort of more conditional kind of um advice for the author or for the journal, right? Because the journal might be like, we don't want to publish something that is very formalist. But I think it's okay to be like, listen, I think the piece itself cannot decide whom it is that they want the audience to be. And I think depending on this question and answer, there is different things that you can do. So I think it's okay in a sense to acknowledge the existence of different audience audiences and to acknowledge um, that sometimes also there isn't a fundamental ideological disagreement or whatever. There are questions of framing um, that need to be addressed because sometimes I'm like, this is a wonderful piece. It just doesn't do the thing you think it's doing. And if I judge that based on that, I would have to reject it. But I think you need to just switch your framing a little bit and it would be wonderful in its own terms. So I think it's it's okay to give this sort of. And of course, each will decide for themselves what is that they consider disagreement, disagreeable but worthy and what they consider, like, you know, beyond the pale. And hopefully less and less, like we will be able to train ourselves in a way that less and less will be beyond the pale. Robbie. Thanks, Tina. Um, that was great and helpful. Um, can I ask two probably very related questions? The first is um, time, as in how much time do you devote to the task? How much do you think is reasonable, both from the perspective of an of a peer reviewer, an author, and, and I guess an editor as well? And the other very closely related question is how far away from your work is too far away because that that's going to influence um, the amount of time that you need to spend as well. Just any thoughts would be great. Yeah, thank you. I don't accept any previews in which I would have to do research in order to have an opinion, right? I just don't. I don't do that. I know some people do. I'm like, no, everything is within the text, right? There's nothing outside it. Um, 
I would say it doesn't tend to take me more than a couple of hours. Um, this is because I, I understand that I read quite quickly. So I tend to just read a little diagonally um, the first time just to see if there is anything there that I can say anything valuable. And then the second time I tend to like read it slower taking notes at the same time, writing basically down, perhaps not full comments, but, you know, sentences at the same time that then I turn into text. I also don't tend to write more than a very big paragraph. Uh, what would that be? 550 words as comments? Like, I think it's extremely unlikely. It's either something that I considered really bad or something that I considered really good <laughs> if I end up writing um, more than a chunky um, paragraph. So to me, that takes a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. And I think anything that would take you considerably longer than that, not because you're a slower reader, but because it feels too far outside your sphere of, you know, competence, I think it would become legitimate, um, legitimate to say no. The other thing that I do sometimes, I tell the editors before I agree, and I also write it um, in, my, in my review, which is like, in this review, I will comment on this aspect of the paper. I'm not commenting on this other aspect that I don't know anything about. So sometimes and I will sometimes say that to the editors before accepting that, like, okay, guys, I can do this, but that's the only thing I can I can speak to. And you need to find someone who will be complimentary. I think it's also okay to write that down very explicitly and address, let's say, the international law aspect of that than getting into the historical detail or say I will discuss the big conceptual issues but you need to find someone who knows law of the sea to look through the law of the sea stuff because I don't know if that's correct um so I think that's that's a legitimate thing to do to to limit yourself and obviously it will have to be an aspect of the paper that is big enough but you know to me sometimes there is at least especially in more like interdisciplinary legal work, there is at least two intersecting bodies of literature. If I can comment on one, I would say yes. And then I will just comment on that one. And I'll be like, someone needs to look through the details or someone needs to look through the history. Thanks, Dana. That's really helpful. Sandhya. Hi. Thanks, uh, Dana. That's really provocative. To, I mean, provocative in the sense, not because it's controversial, but provokes me to think uh, about my own practice, which is really useful. So um, two things I would say. One is in terms of I noticed you tweeted the other day about, you know, this is part of your labour. Uh, and I think that's absolutely right. So the way I manage the workload is I, I have a number each year that I commit to doing because if I connected it to my own output, <laughs> That risks falling into a heap. <laughs> but I basically just say I'll try to do 10 a year and I have a list, a page in my notebook where I keep track of the pacing. And after that, my commitment to good citizenship, I feel I can just say, no, I've done my 
done my bit. Now somebody else has to do their bit too. Um, but the other thing is, one thing that's burned me a few times is that I've left it too late and by the time I've got to it, I realised I'm the wrong reviewer because I couldn't tell from the abstract and then because I've left it so late, I've, I can't go back to the editor. So one thing I discipline myself to do now that I didn't do before is as soon as I receive it, skim read it and if you have a problem with it, send it back that day. Like if it makes you feel really cross and you just think I won't be the fairest reviewer for this, send it back uh, immediately so the editor's not in trouble. Um, and the other thing I'd say in response to Robbie's question about how long it takes. So, Robbie, I've had peer reviews that have taken me days and I think Dina's probably more efficient than me, but sometimes when I can tell that the scholar is a PhD student or someone working in a second language or someone who is missing some conventions of academic writing, I've, I get into teacher mode and I write a really detailed report that could stretch to four, four pages where I really, in a non-patronising way, say there's some really wonderful seeds in this and here is my advice on how to correct the writing what was what's often a writing and presentation problem and the kind of evidentiary forms that are needed and I partly do that because having been an editor for example of the Australian Feminist Law Journal we know that for for people whose work we're trying to publish who are it's maybe their first go and stuff that we often will say to reviewers can you take a sort of educative approach to this not just an evaluative one and so I sometimes do that myself, even though I probably don't, you know, I don't have to, but it feels like between the yes, no, the teacher in me can't let some of them go. So I totally agree with Ben that you have to learn to train yourself into a read the first three pages, make a decision and then base that because otherwise everything in our life will take too long. And with student marking you make an indicative judgment in the first page, I think, and then and then assess whether that was the mark because otherwise you read everything and it's too slow. But I have literally spent one, one peer review I did not that long ago because there was a good bit and I thought a problematic move in it. It took me ages. What a mistake that was. <laughs> but, they, but they wrote back and they were so... The editor just said this, the person who wrote it was so grateful and it just felt like someone who hadn't, who didn't have enough attention from a more senior scholar in their life. So I hope it was none of my PhD students. <laughs> but, yeah, that that would be what I'd say. But maybe that's because I'm an old old lady now. <laughs> I have revealed myself to be, you know, too quick. No, but like I like I, I can see what you mean, especially for there is a moment in which you realize that this is a PhD. Um, and I do think, and I think it's also okay, yeah, without saying, oh, this is a PhD, I will exactly lower the standards. I think it is okay to have a different approach. I think it is almost necessary to have a different approach. How one will decide that this approach is going to be different I think will different among between people but I absolutely agree that um once you pick that up 
there is an obligation to treat it differently. I can see we've got a question from Laura and I can go to you now. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um, Just picking up on some of what's been said about, you know, when you approach the text, it's difficult not to kind of treat it like you're marking it. Um, I don't have very much experience writing these reviews, but I find it really tricky to make a distinction between these kind of granular level comments where I want to kind of respond to a certain bit in the text and not and kind of mark it as I go through and then recognize that what I'm trying to do is just write that paragraph that those 500 or a thousand words which are recommendations but it feels amiss to not also sort of correct some of the things as you go through or make different smaller comments as you go through, but that's not the genre and you're not sending back a a text that has track changes on it with all these smaller comments. So I'm just wondering how do you balance that urge or do you ignore that or how do you sort of use productively kind of take on these broader ideas that you want to get through but also you know, there might be just a few other things that could really change the direction in a footnote or something that you want to also mention. Thank you, Laura. So I think there is scope not for like line-to-line editing because I think that's the job of the editor, right? And you're also hoping that this is a collaborative relationship and the editor on the other side are also doing their job. But I think there is scope to say, and sometimes I do, here is some big picture, argumentative coherence and structure stuff. And also on page seven, line three, there is this thing that I really cannot let go. <laughs> so I think there is absolutely scope. And for me, in a sense, the better the piece, the more likely is that I will give them these relatively detailed. Um, in this footnote, I think you could also be citing X. So I think there is space for it. Obviously, there has to be a certain balance because you cannot replace and you should not replace the editor. But I think, and I was, when I have received, like on page seven, line three kind of comments, these were actually the easiest one to implement. And sometimes the ones that I was the most grateful for that someone caught um, a, a very silly mistake or something like that. So I don't think you have to let those totally um, go and I think especially in in pieces that you think are very likely to be published, right? In pieces that perhaps you're giving, you know, very major revisions or even um, a reject. Of course, you could do the things Sandia said and give them, you know, four pages very detailed feedback. But perhaps it's not the first thing that needs to be saved. And also, I think. In a sense, sometimes you're giving them such major revisions that you know the piece will be very different when it's going to be published. So the thing that is irking you will not be there. But I think for me, if I have given someone minor corrections or no corrections, then I'm like, by the way, do check this four or five extremely specific things. Dana, thank you. And thanks for the question, Laura. I've got, um, I can see Jade has got her hand up and I'll go to you in a moment, Jade, but you just got beaten uh, to the punch uh, with a question by Rachel in the chat. Uh, The question reads as follows, why are reviews anonymous? Good question. Uh, In some rare cases, I've seen reviewers disclose their name on reviews. 
where there's an opportunity for collaboration or broadening networks, is it always an absolute no-no? How about post-publication? Dina, uh, do you want to address the fraught question of anonymity? Yes. All things being equal, I think I'm in support of double-blind peer review um, in the sense that um, I do think it gives a certain freedom, especially to more junior scholars, to actually speak their mind and to the extent that more senior scholars are going through peer review, which, I mean, obviously not always the case, um, someone can just tell them what's wrong with their stuff, right, in a way that I feel it can't always happen. That being said, I think you will realize that after you enter your field for a few years, Rachel, you will have very educated guesses. Uh, it happened to me very recently. I knew immediately who the person was, and the person guessed very quickly that I was the reviewer. <laughs> People write in particular styles you start picking it up so that hopefully eases some of your concerns about the collaboration I do think that after the piece is out you could reach out to the person as someone who saw the piece I would personally not necessarily say that it was me who reviewed it but I think it's okay if you've seen the piece and it's out and it's someone that you know you haven't met um, and you would like to work with, to reach out to someone who says, this is a really good piece. I work on this cognate area and I would like to like work together. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was me, especially if it was someone I didn't know. Um, but I think also, as you will see, sooner or later, you would have some very good and educated guesses. I mean, my staff tends to go to a very particular number of people um, who I work with very often. Yeah, and I think these days we've all kind of assiduously created an online presence on Twitter or um, uh, various web pages that it's often the case that you know, as a reviewer, if you just Google uh, the title um, of a piece that you've been sent to review, the chances are it'll pop up in some workshop or pre-publication form or even on SSRN. And like, I'm constantly finding as an editor that that's one of the first things, well, the second thing, first I'll think of, well, first I'll decide if it's going to, if I'm going to reject the piece in an internal reject or a desk reject, then I'll think of who the reviewers are. And then I'll actually just Google it myself and find out if some version of it is online and which place I'll get the associate editor to write to the person. So if you would actually like to benefit from anonymity, a double-blind peer review, I think you need to shut your web page down. Um, or at least just scrub that, scrub that little bit. Um, Jade, if I can shoot to you now. Thanks so much, Ben. Dina, thank you so much. This is just really, really wonderful advice and it's so considered and so thoughtful. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I want to ask a question that's more from the perspective of um, as a peer reviewer dealing with journals. I'm just wondering if you have any reflections or if anyone does on what is really good best practice um, coming from journals in sort of the guidelines that they give you as reviewer or something else about the communication or um, are there any forms of recognition of reviewers that you think is good practice? That's such a wonderful question. So for me, the main 
think concerning best practice is reasonable deadlines <laughs> to be reviewed. Yeah, for me, that's absolutely uh, essential. Yeah, when people contact me and there's like, and you have a look at it within the next week, the answer is invariably no, even if I have time. It's, it's almost a matter of principle. I'm like anything less than a month. I'm just going to say no, because that's not a reasonable thing to ask people to do. And it's encouraging really bad uh, habits. So that's the one thing. Um, the second thing would be, I do generally benefit from having as much information as possible. Um, so I generally think that having Obviously, the title and the abstract, but even the first couple of pages can be really useful to avoid what Sandia said, which is to avoid um, figuring out too late that you are not um, you are not the right person. Um, and obviously, it does generally. I do appreciate. Um, hearing back I mean sometimes you figure it out because it it comes out and you're like okay yeah th this was published um but sometimes I think it, it it is a nice thing to just have a very like in one liner be like thank you based on you know you and the other reviewer we decided to accept or we decided to reject or whatever it just feels like a little bit of an appreciation of the work you've done and I felt this also for grant peer reviews um, I, the, the Swiss system, unlike the ARC, that may just ignore what you said, the Swiss system, for example, always informs you of the outcome. And it may have been coincidental, but the outcome did align with what I had recommended. And I just felt, I thought that was a nice thing and I'm going to peer review for them again in a way that for, I'm very skeptical about peer reviewing for the ARC, for example, um, given everything we know. Uh, so yeah, I understand that journal editors are slammed too. So, but a new one-liner can be really nice. That's great. And Jay, because you... Um address that question more broadly, I'm going to uh, not resist the urge to jump in. Um, and just to offer a few really quick reflections, if only to give people more time to think about actual questions. <clears throat> so unlike um, unlike Dina, obviously, because I'm much more neoliberal, I think a long time ago, I did start making a record of like all the journals that I'd reviewed for, and they ended up on some web page, well, not a web page, a Word document, and now they're in my CV. Um, at last count, it was something ridiculous, about 53 different journals that I'd reviewed for because I have a trouble saying no, although now listening to Dina, perhaps I'll get a little better at, at saying no to some requests. But I can say that of the journals that I've reviewed, so of the 53, only once in my experience of a peer reviewer have I got what I now consider to be best practice in terms of what kind of edgy bureaucrats would call closing the loop. So I've, I've now forgotten the name of the journal. I can go back and dig it up. Um, where as a reviewer, you get not just told, as Dana suggested before, like oh, based on what you've said, we decided to reject or accept or whatever, but you got told what the decision was and you also got given, anonymized, what reviewers one, two, and three. Like I was a fourth reviewer on a piece. They'd obviously had some challenges with it. Um, and they wrote back to all of us and gave all of us the decision about what they decided to do, thanking us for the work, but showing us what each of us had said about this piece. It was enormously educative. So it didn't just kind of thank us for our work and it was a form of acknowledgement, but actually it was really handy to see 
like, oh my God, you read it in that way. That's ridiculous. Um, and to see how that it actually also implicitly made the point that the editors had a real challenge trying to make a make a decision based on the really discrepant reading. So it was actually, but that's happened only once. Most often it's the case that you'll say something should not see the light of day. Nobody bothers to tell you. And then six months later, like there it is, um, pinging into your inbox from one of the notifications from the journals that you've signed up to, which I just think is such bad form. Just really quickly before I shoot to the, Kathleen, there are a few more, just on your point of kind of recognition, um, a couple of journals that I'm involved in have a kind of annual um, review for the best peer you know, so the Australian Journal of Human Rights does that. The best you get a you know you get a gong for the best peer review in a given year, decided by the editor who reads them all, obviously, um, which I think is a nice form of recognition. Um, bunch more you could say about that, I suppose, but I'm going to pass to Kathleen because she looks like she's got an actual question. <laughs> I was actually just going to throw something in at the end. I'm not sure if it's within the scope of the conversation, really, but um, whether you think that if how your approach is different when you're reviewing a book proposal. Yes, I've been asked to do that. Um, I can't remember once or twice. And the the context is quite different because you've only got an excerpt. You might have, you might have a full chapter or two, um, but it's about the potential of the project um, and not about, you know, being able to see it um, in its entirety. And that's a different prospect. So, yeah, any thoughts on that? Thank you. And for those who haven't had that or they haven't ever reviewed a book proposal, these don't tend to be anonymous, right? Or they're um, anonymous in regards to the reviewers, but not in regards to the um, authors. And actually, one of the things you have to comment upon is whether you think that the author would be capable of carrying um, this project to fruition, right? So you're actually asked to comment on the person um, in a way that I personally find quite challenging, um, especially if sometimes you're like, I don't know them, but I'm not saying that to saying anything bad about them. I'm sure they're wonderful but I just don't know them. Uh, but it's, it's difficult to make this not sound dismissive. Um, so obviously I do find that book reviews take much more time, um, especially when people send you their whole manuscript with it, which sometimes is the manuscript of a PhD that is meant to be turned um, into... into um, uh, into a book. Um, I'm actually, unlike perhaps Kathleen, or I don't know if we disagree, I find it easier to only read a couple of chapters than the whole thing, because the whole thing usually reads very PhD-ish, and it's really difficult to reimagine it um, as a book. Um, basically, for me, uh, for, for books, I what I try to figure out is it sounds a strange thing to say, but in a sense, I'm trying to look more into the novelty and internal coherence rather than, of course, you look at the quality of the argument. I'm making a strange distinction right here, but I assume that usually people put quite a bit of work into that, especially turning it um, from a PhD to a book, especially because 
I think almost all the ones that I have reviewed was somebody's first um, book. What I might do sometimes, because you do see the name, is if I don't know them and I haven't read anything that they have written, I try to actually like Google them and see if I can find anything online that is reassuring um, in the sense of like, not like their online presence, but as in if they have published something that is adjacent and it actually reads well, why the PhD really reads like a PhD. Um, I do try, I think that having taking full advantage of the fact that it is not double blind has actually helped me. And I think it has hopefully helped me to make more educated guesses about whether this person can complete the project. And I think these days many people would publish, you know, as articles, a couple of things that are around their PhD and that can give you hopefully a sense. So I think it's worth taking seriously the fact that it's not double blind and do things that yet we all Google things, but I think here you're doing it and you are not breaching any rules and any ethics. I think it's worth taking that very seriously. Um, And I think it can be very helpful. The flip side advice I give to people is, Unless they really ask you to, don't send the whole thing. Send the two best chapters. Um, Because also, because the whole thing is probably not very good, but also I felt as a reviewer compelled to read the whole thing. And by the end, I was just tired and grumpy. Um, So the flip side advice is if you can avoid it, don't send it. So just on that point of grumpiness, which is a nice point to almost bring us to time, can I ask a question? How do you write a review um, when you've been sent something as a peer reviewer that you think should not have got past the editor's desk? So I say that because when I started doing editorial work, one of the things I tried to stop was the practice of sending things on to peer review uh, because I would get really grumpy uh, being asked to review something by an editor when I think actually the decision should have been made at the desk reject stage. Um, How do you write? How do you deal with that as a peer reviewer? Yeah, um, so... To take half a step back, I think a lot of the problems that we identify as peer review problems are really bad editorial work problems, including editors sending back to authors sexist things, sexist things. I'm like, you shouldn't have sent this back, right? You shouldn't have sent the review at all. But I think sometimes as an editor, I have taken things out when I thought the person was just becoming extremely rude and critical and whatever. So that is one thing. The second thing is I try to do it in a way that is not unfair to the author because sometimes also as I get annoyed as an author because I'm like, they desk rejected my thing and they are sending this out. How dare they? But in a sense, I do try as much as possible to not turn it into um, an unfair thing about the author. And I do make a lot of use of the... um, of the option to send comments directly to the editors. I do that both for that sort of articles, but also for articles that are borderline. So sometimes I say, I think 
this is between major corrections and reject. If it's a PhD student, I think you should accept it as major corrections. So I think making use, because for those of you who haven't done it or the general didn't have it, you have two types of comments usually. The comments that are only visible to the editors and the comments that are visible both to the editors and um, potentially to the author, I do use and I have used the function of only writing to the editors to say in an indirect but not really indirect way, I don't know why this is out for review. Um, but at the same time, to the extent that I wrote then something for the author, I try not to say that to the author. But I think I do make use of that a lot and I hope that it is useful um, for the editors as well. That's really helpful, Dana. I can see, Sanjay, I'm going to shoot to you for the last word. Okay, so this relates to what you just said and also to Jade's earlier question. So I think best practice for journals to ask is never to let the machine ask the reviewer. And if a machine asks me and I don't get an email from an editor, I just hit reject instantly. So if I get some generated thing from like Scholar One without an email from an editor, I will just click no thank you. <laughs> um, because I think that's so rude. It's like, ugh. anyway, the other thing is that if it feels like the piece shouldn't have passed the desk review, then because of that personal email from the editor, it doesn't have to be someone who knows me, I would often write back and say, um, I don't think this should, that's, this is another reason why it's good to do it early. I don't think this should have passed the desk review. Is there a reason why you sent it out? And often I'll give the reason why I think it shouldn't have passed the desk review, which is um, sometimes helpful for editors who also may be learning on the job. So if there's a tonal problem, for example, Dina, you mentioned like the tonal problem of the text, or if it feels too undercooked, then I would say to the editor, this feels like it needs another couple of passes over before it goes to review and it would be too much of my time to offer the suggestions to fix it even though there's a good idea there. So I think you should send it back and ask them to revise it in order for it to be sent to review if it feels too uncooked. So that can, I think knowing lots of editors and as an editor, that um, that can be helpful. Absolutely. Um, I see that we are two minutes past one and we may have other less interesting um, Zoom rooms to go to. Um, so I want to give people the opportunity to do that. But before I do that, I want to get everybody to join me in thanking either by popping into the chat or using your actual hands or your avatar hands or whatever confetti you can muster. Um, <laughs> uh, great thanks to Dina for coming and joining us today as a very special guest to talk about peer review. That was really, really fantastic. And I learned a lot um, listening to you and I'm sure everybody else did. So thank you, Dina. Thank you, everybody, for coming. And we will hope to see you next time. Um, details to be advised shortly. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.